Well, amen, and it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you would, turn with me to the end of Titus. We're in chapter 3, the last four verses. You can tell we have a different mic setup. We had to make a, an adjustment this morning, so I trust that you can hear me. But Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 will serve as our sermon text. And I'll read that now and ask God to help us. So, beloved, hear the word of the living God. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let me ask for his help once again. Father, we are so thankful for your beloved son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us with his life. Thank you, Lord, for this moment now where we open your book and you feed us. We pray, Lord, that you would establish your word in the hearts of your servants and that it would produce reverence for you and that you would help us as a congregation to learn what it means to learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, and to not be unfruitful, but to be a fruitful congregation for the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we have finally made it to the end of Titus. We're in the last four verses, which also marks the end of our study in the pastoral epistles, which we began almost a year ago, January of this year, beginning in 1 Timothy in a different building. And I trust that your heart, like mine, has been blessed uh, by these three uh, little letters. Well, as we think about the verses before us, I want to ask you two questions. They're... they're uh, putting them on a T kind of question, simplistic questions, but it'll stir our hearts to think a little bit about our passage this morning. What do these people have in common? So question one, what do these people have in common? Matt Nash, Brian Smith, Artemis, Amy Carmichael, Zenus the lawyer, Hunter Coy, and Hudson Taylor. What do those people have in common? Well, sim simply, it's not a loaded question per se, they're gospel workers, right? Missionaries, pastors. Well, if I ask you the second question, what do these things have in common? Southwoods Baptist Church, the church at Crete, Agona Church in Ghana where the Packards were, Grace Church. Well, it's a place where there are gospel supporters people who make sure that those gospel workers lack nothing by doing good deeds. Or we could say it another way, which gets to the heart of Paul's saying in today's passages, gospel people, gospel believers, we're talking about Christians, are to learn by grace to engage in good deeds for the furtherance of the gospel, to be fruitful for the ministry of the gospel. Gospel people, gospel believers, I'm talking about Christians, are to learn by grace to engage in good deeds for the furtherance of the gospel. If you have one of these, 
It's a little sermon card that we pass out. Many of you know what it is. And we're right about in the middle. And you can see that the title of today's sermon is What Gospel Believers Must by Grace Learn to Do. Now we try. We try as elders to get really, really close to the passage. We really try to get to the heart of the passage when we do these titles. And sometimes we whiff. Sometimes, I mean, we're not preaching the title. We're preaching the passage. I think Pastor Jordan did this week's, but I think it's spot on. That's what Paul is after in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Well, there's a lot of practical things happening in the passage. We've got people showing up, some we've never heard of, some we have heard of. We have people leaving. It's a lot of, lot of practical stuff, especially at the end of Paul's, uh, the ends of his epistles, his letters. But all this practical stuff is tethered together by a couple things, really backdrop kind of foundation that I want to lay before you. One is the gospel ministry of the church. So in context, we'll see we got Titus leaving to go see Paul. We've got somebody coming in to backfill Titus for gospel ministry. We have some missionaries coming in. We don't know where they're going, but they're going to leave. So all of this is in the realm of the church. Paul's a churchman. Everything he does is for the local church and for the glory of Jesus and for gospel spreading. So there's a lot of practical things going on, a lot of names, but it's tethered to that local church ministry. And number two, it's the reality that Christians are going to do good works to help that ministry. So involved in these passages, it's assumed that Christians are going to do certain things because they're Christians, and those are good works to help those ministries. Well, what's the purpose of good works? Well, Scripture says a lot of things about good works, and I'm talking about working from salvation. We'll talk about that. But good works, according to verse 14, are a vehicle for meeting pressing needs. We'll look at that later. There's pressing needs there at Crete. Missionaries are coming in. We need to learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. It also says that they're to ensure fruitfulness. Paul's concerned about the Crete believers. There's a vision for them. He wants them to be fruitful. An application, we need to be fruitful. So a theme all across the New Testament, all across Scripture, especially in Titus, is that Christians... We have the Holy Spirit, right? Christians, it's not a special sect of Christianity. We have the Holy Spirit, are empowered by the Spirit to bear fruit. Or Jesus would say it this way from John 15, you know the passage. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. So good works give evidence to our genuine faith in Christ as we meet those pressing needs to spread his eternal joy. Which is why I asked my first two questions to kind of stir us up. What does this have in common? What does this have in common? So again, Christians engage in good deeds because that's what Christians do, according to verse 14. And they are a vehicle, an avenue, if you will, to meet pressing needs. Well, as we look at the passage this morning, I see it breaking down into four places, four pieces. Someone who's way more creative could have come up with something better. But here are the four points that I have this morning. I see the passage breaking down this way. One, Paul's plan is verses 12 and 13. Two, Paul's instruction, that's verse 14, which gets to the heart of what he's saying. Point three is Paul's greeting, verse 15, and Paul's benediction in verse 15. So Paul's plan, Paul's instruction, Paul's greeting, and Paul's benediction. And in considering the passage, we will have to reckon with our own hearts, beloved, to think about what God really says about who Christians are and what they do and how we're to relate to one another and how generosity fits into our lives and how we express it and how we can leverage our own lives as Christians, 
gospel believers to meet pressing needs. Well, first, let's look at Paul's plan in verses 12 and 13. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Well, as we dig into that passage, maybe it would be helpful just a very quick summary of how we got here in the book of Titus. We know in chapter 1, we learned that Paul, there's churches in Crete. Crete is in uh, Greece. It's a Greek island. Uh, we know that Cretan culture was pretty well known, but not for the good stuff. So it's a pretty rough culture there. Uh, we know this because Paul agrees with their prophets who say Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And we know that Paul left Titus there to set some things in order. So you have this network of churches. Paul left. He leaves Titus. Titus, I want you to set some things in order by two ways. One is appointing elders in every city, and the other way is by pushing back against those false teachers that show up in chapter 1 who have turned away from the truth. They're Jewish Cretans. They love Jewish myths and genealogies. They're upsetting whole families. We'll see that in chapter 2. And they're teaching for sordid gain, so they want to be paid for all this stuff that they're infiltrating into the churches. At the heart of it, and Paul says this in verse 16 of chapter 1. It's a very damning statement. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Paul says they're worthless for any good deed, for any good work. Their actions say something very different than what their mouths say. So he's very, he speaks quite a bit about behavior in this epistle, and he uses a lot of contrasts, right? Titus, I want you to go ahead and appoint elders. Those men are going to look a lot different than those false teachers that have showed up in Crete and who are teaching something very different. So these men, these elders, Christ-like, full of the Holy Spirit, men of character, they're very different than what he's pushing back against. Well, in chapter 2, we get to the household. It makes sense, right? Like, so Titus is there. He's taking care of the church, appoint elders. But the things that these men are teaching... The false teachers, it's infiltrated the homes. And then we get into the old men, young men, old women, young women, and the slaves. And what's happened is these men have brought disrepute on the name of Christ by teaching what they've teaching. It's just, it's like wreckage in all these families. So Titus is to teach them. Paul beats that gospel drum in chapter 2, verse 11. He's saying, if you're transformed by the gospel, your behavior looks very different. It looks like something in keeping with the gospel. And so he talks about their behavior in the home and how they're supposed to look different and how their testimony is different. So all this bad teaching has led to corrupt living and it's led to a dishonoring of Christ and ruined testimonies. One teacher on this portion of the book noted, and really this, you could say this about the whole book, the Christian way of life is based on God's generous grace, which was demonstrated when Jesus gave up his honor to die a shameful death on behalf of his enemies. It's the same grace that calls God's people to reject corrupt ways of life that are inconsistent with the generous love of God. That's what Titus is, in summary, teaching them in the household. So we have the church, he goes to the households, and then in chapter 3 that Nathan preached last week, Titus is teaching them that there's this new humanity that is transformed. You're, we're transformed into a new humanity by the gospel. 
So we're zealous for good works. We were once all these negative things. And he's saying the gospel does something. It transforms us. We want to do good works. We're good citizens. Good works will mark these people. Again, in contrast to the people that he notes at the end of chapter 3 before our passage, there's a contrast there with the false teachers. So this brings us to the end of the book in chapter chapter 3, verse 12. And Paul's not done with his plans for Crete. He's not done with his plans for Titus. He's jealous to see these believers in Crete be fruitful. He's jealous to see their behavior be godly and to line up with the gospel. And he's been saying those things. He wants to see the church beautified by the gospel there in Crete. So Paul's plans are clear. We'll look at verse 12. He wants Titus to come back to him at Nicopolis. So Titus isn't going to say stay. Paul sent him there. He left him there for a reason. And he's going to keep, he's going to keep him there until... Paul backfills him. He doesn't want a gap until Paul sends someone to take his place. He's not going to leave the church at Crete without a pastor. He's raised up elders. If Titus leaves, still needs someone to come in to encourage the elders, to teach doctrine. So Paul's going to do that. This is part of his plans. And he says in the passage that he's going to send Artemis or Tychicus to him. And he wants those who are coming, likely bringing the letter. There's two more people that are coming as well. Zenos and Apollos to have their physical needs cared for when they get there. Okay, so Paul, he's not there yet. He's going to Nicopolis. Titus, I want you to come to me. I'm going to send someone there to take your place. And oh, by the way, there's two more people coming, missionaries, and we're going to learn, I want you to take care of them, their needs when they get there, and when they go. So we don't know who's going to take Titus's place. We don't know anything about Artemis. A lot of times we get these names at the end. Artemis, this is the first time he's named but we knew, do know about Tychicus, right? We, we know him from Acts 20, verse 4, as one who accompanied Paul through Macedonia with Trophimus with the gift for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And then he shows up in Ephesians, and he shows up in Colossians, where Paul calls him a faithful servant, a beloved brother, and a fellow bondservant in the Lord. And in both letters, Ephesians and Colossians, he's also the guy who will tell those churches how Paul's doing. So this brother loves Jesus, just like Artemis, but he's described in other places. So who went to Crete then? We have Artemis, we have Tychicus. Well, most people believe that Artemis is the guy that comes to take Titus's place because in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about sending Tychicus to Ephesus. So I love the fact that Paul was making sure that there wasn't going to be a gap in the ministry there at Crete. So once he gets there, that's when I want you to come, be determined to come with me. Now think about Titus just for a moment. Maybe this afternoon, I dare you to take a slow read through this letter and think about that man's ministry. Not, not so much with sanctified imagination, you can, or not adding anything to it, but if you just think about Titus, this man labored faithfully. He appointed elders in every city. He was doing elder assessments. He was teaching sound doctrine. He was refuting error. He was pushing back against the false teachers, all the while being an example to the churches of what he was teaching and of good works. He's raising up leaders, he's training them, he's guiding them. I don't know where I read it, but I read it somewhere where several people said he was like Paul's gospel hitman. Because Paul would send him into the hard places. He went to second, he, he's in 2 Corinthians, so he was in the Corinthian church. He was actually there stirring those people up for that offering that was going to go to the saints at Jerusalem. Paul sent him into Crete, and that was a hard place too. And based on 2 Corinthians, he also saw firsthand 
what the gospel and good works look like with the generosity of meeting pressing needs. Paul had mentored him, and now he wants him to come back to Nicopolis. Now, Nicopolis is also, it's just mentioned there, a lot of times just read over something like that, but Nicopolis is important. Just make a note about that. He's very specific about where he's going, Paul. He's not there yet, based on the passage. But Nicopolis is a very strategic place where he wants Titus to come, help him in ministry there. And it's really one step closer to where he actually wants to go. George Knight in his commentary says, his choice of Nicopolis put him and Titus one step further west of the area where most of his labors had been concentrated and was most likely taken with a view to fulfilling his desire to go where the gospel had not been preached and ultimately to Spain. And you can read about that in Romans 15, 20. So Paul's going, Titus is coming, several others are coming to Crete. Two more are heading that way. Two more names in this passage. Paul's plan. Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Now this is the first time Zenos the lawyer is mentioned uh, in the Bible, the only time. And Apollos we know uh, from other parts of Scripture. But Paul says that he wants to make sure that they receive the best hospitality. Look there in verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So Zenos is probably an expert in Jewish law, which hence the name, or he was a Roman lawyer. And again, Apollos we know from Acts 18, 24 as the Alexandrian who came to Ephesus and was mighty in the scriptures. And Paul's saying when they get there, you need to make sure that you meet their needs. And when they go, do the same. He's saying, Titus, you have missionaries coming. Please make sure they have everything they need while they are with you. Be hospitable. And when they go, make sure that they're well supported. Make sure if they need anything, financial, material, that's the thrust of what Paul is saying. Literally, help on one's journey. And it almost always, biblically, means some sort of financial provision. And the phrase, on their way, is always related to Christian ministry. Same word we find in 1 Corinthians 16.6, 6, send me on my way. So they're just stopping by, likely to drop the letter off that we're walking through right now to Titus to encourage him, and then they're heading out. We don't know where they're going, but they're missionaries. So Titus was to diligently, with haste, special urgency, 3 John 6, his missionary friends. What does 3 John 6 say? You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That's appropriate generosity. That's engaging in good deeds. That's sending someone. That's a high bar. Paul says, take care of them that way. Just pause with me just for a moment to, to think about God's wisdom, the grandeur, and how he spreads his gospel. Titus is on Crete, having helped the churches there. Incredible labor that we read about in three small chapters. Paul is heading to Nicopolis for strategic work. His heart, desirously wanting to go where the gospel's not been named. Tychicus, the faithful bondservant, is going to head to Ephesus, ultimately, ministering on behalf of Paul. Artemis is coming to take Titus's spot, and Artemis would be mentored by Paul, right? He would be able to do the things Titus is doing. He's going to help the newly appointed elders in their ministry. And Apollos and Zenos 
our partners in mission, and they're coming to bring the letter and encourage Titus, and then they're going to go somewhere else. Many people believe that they may have ended up in Egypt because of the Alexandria tie to Apollo's heart. That's a wide ministry. That's a lot of co-laboring for the gospel. That's teamwork ministry. That's ministry that can't be done without support and engaging in good deeds. Now, we might find ourselves saying, I know I do it sometimes. Man, that's some great first, Christian, first, first century Christianity stuff. And we know from the Bible that that's just Christianity stuff. That's what we're all supposed to do. And when I read a passage like this, it seems so unassuming and very practical and doesn't seem like there's a lot of details there. When we dig into it, I'm thankful for the TCT network. When we think about co-laboring and teamwork ministry and the way that our paths crisscross with so many ministries, I'm thankful for that TCT ministry that our pastors benefit from and receive help from and strategize with to figure out how to get the gospel further and further and further. I'm thankful for the TCT Memphis little cohort that Jordan started years ago here in town with with churches. Again, co-ministry, thinking about missions, thinking about elders, thinking about how to take the gospel to our city and to the nations. I'm thankful for Catalyst, Pastor Nathan works for, and for BJ and the Packards. And there's other people here that I'm leaving out that have probably gone with them. I'm thankful for those gospel workers who are also supported by churches like ours to take the gospel out. Today in our own congregation, we're doing this. There's an example of this today. Brian Smith is actually not here because he's preaching at Crosspoint for their elders. Matt's off, wants to give the elders a break, and so in one sense, they said, send Brian to encourage our congregation. So very much is teamwork ministry. He's going there. That's a good work, brothers. That's a tangible gospel support good work. And us being happy about it and praying for him and wanting that to happen, that's, that's good work stuff too. Well, Paul's plan is for Titus to not stay and to come to him, for someone to come to Titus, likely Artemis, and for those missionaries to come and to be supported as they come and as they go. He doesn't want them to lack anything. Let's look at Paul's instruction, verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So he's saying to him, Titus, diligently make sure that the missionaries are cared for. Everything. Encourage them. Provide for them. We talk around here. People, new people come. Form tackle them in Jesus with hospitality. We really don't form tackle people. But we want to form tackle them with Jesus and hospitality. Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And then verse 14. Do this. Also, mobilize the church to help you do that. Remind the believers in Crete that this is what Christianity looks like. Show them by your example. Teach them that they need to learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that the gospel goes forth. Titus isn't by himself, right? He's not by himself. He has support, and the missionaries need support, so they're all going to support together. Our people there in the passage likely refers to the Cretan believers that Titus had been teaching. I told you there's a contrast in, in the epistle these are the fellow Christian, the gospel believers, the people in Titus 3 that have been saved, the ones who were once foolish, once disobedient, once hateful. They're not now. They have the Holy Spirit. They've been justified by His grace. They're heirs. They are opposite of the others who infiltrated the church. 
those people can't do good deeds because of who they are. But Paul is telling Titus, our people need to learn to do good deeds It's because of who they are, because they're Christians. And Paul's vision is the same as Jesus' vision. Authentic believers will show their faith by their works. They will distinguish themselves from the world by their deeds and by their behavior, by how they live, because of who lives within them. Paul's calling Titus to teach these believers to learn to engage in good deeds. Now Paul knows that that looks like Romans 12.13. Romans 12.13 says this, if you want to know what it looks like to engage in good deeds, and we do need help, Romans 12.13, beginning in verse 10, actually, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's the kind of spirit Paul is after with his church. And he talks about good deeds, good works throughout the whole letter. We've already noted that. Be zealous for good deeds, he tells him in 2.14. Be ready for every good deed. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Be careful to engage in good deeds. That's chapter 3, verse 8. And now ours, learn to engage in good deeds. They must learn. But the thrust of that word, the thrust of that imperative is not so much learn by teaching like this. It's learn by doing. Learn by experience. Keep on learning. So think about learn by doing. I can remember when Augusta was born. Okay, firstborn for us. She's already getting nervous because I'm using her name. But I remember when she was born and we were in the hospital. Brandy had a C-section. And Brandy's, she knows how to do all this stuff already from babysitting and all these things. And so first diaper, okay, it's time for dad to step up to the plate. Brandy can't change it because she's down. She can't even show me. I'll spare all the details because she's 24, but it, it didn't go well, okay? And so, a lot of crying, I don't even know if I got it on right, it wasn't good. Now, I could have someone tell me how to do it, again, the illustration breaks down, but as you do it more and more, you get better at it, right? You, 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 you use those, uh, the muscle memory, you figure it out, and then you, know, you can do it with a stopwatch like a NASCAR um, uh, team changing a tire. There's no substitute for learning by doing, right? I mean, that's what Paul's after in his expression, what the words are. He's saying, prioritize good deeds. Get that spiritual muscle memory going. Learn to engage in good deeds, right? Think about discipleship. Think about a disciple learning. That's what he's after. We, you know, we, we get nervous. I was talking to Jason Jarvis about this last night. We get nervous when people start talking about good works, right? Like us good gospel-believing types. Like, ah, he's talking about good works. It's not about good works. Well, we know. We're, we're, Paul knows that, okay? He says it in Titus 3. We're not saved by good works. But as Christians... We're going to do good works. It's inherent in who we are. And Paul's saying we need to prioritize those good deeds, those good works. Ephesians 2.10, you know this passage. It tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you ever thought about good works that way? Learning to do them skillfully. Robert Yarborough in his commentary on this book 
He said this, which is really the theme as it runs through the whole book. Sound doctrine involves living out the truth in everyday life, right? That's, that's faith and practice. That's doctrine, deeds. That's what he's been arguing about in this whole epistle. And he's saying, you Cretan believers, the church, you're going to live out the gospel because you have Christ in you. Y'all are supposed to behave differently because you're Christians. It matters in church leaders. Chapter 1, it matters in homes. Chapter 2, in society. Chapter 3, and now at the end, in how you do good deeds and get the gospel out and care for people in doing so. Those people over there are showing who they are by their actions. They're unfruitful. But I want you to bear much fruit. That's what Paul's saying. Paul wants them to be fruitful. He wants them to point to the fame of Christ in their good works. He wants them to be Matthew 5.16 people. He wants them to let their light shine before men in such a way that they may see their good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. That's what he wants. But what about us? I love this church. I, I, love, I love you. I love this church. I've been, been here since 2007 as a member. 2006, our young family, we're old now, but our young family showed up to interest meetings. There's not many of us left from those days. I praise God for that. The church has changed tremendously in good ways. But as I think about giving and hospitality and doing good works and meeting needs, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You all love to do that. I was with a good brother for lunch this week from this congregation, and we were having lunch with somebody else who was not from this congregation, and we were supposed to be talking about work, and we ended up talking about Jesus the whole time, and he just kept going on and on about how grace has blessed him and his family, how he's different, thankful for the elders, for the people here, gave very specific testimony of how God's used this church in his life. I especially loved it when he looked at the man across the table several times and said, Grace Church is the best church in Memphis. We have our flaws, and we know that. We know it. We, we, we have our blind spots. We have the cream cheese on our face that only other people can see, and we don't know is there. We have our flaws, but there's so much grace here. There's so much grace here, and we should be encouraged. And we can learn to engage in good deeds. We can learn to do that better. So let's keep learning to engage in good deeds. That learning, that, we, that means that we should have our heads and our hearts on a swivel. Right? Hunting for good works, as it were. Good listeners. Being very sensitive to the people around us who have pressing needs. And supporting. Supporting for the gospel going and the gospel growing down in us. We can still learn. And that's the beauty of community. That's the beauty of sound doctrine and Sunday mornings and Lord's suppers. When we come here, we all need to be reminded to pursue good works because of Jesus. We all need to sing songs like we just sang. We need to be reminded to be zealous for good deeds because, because He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. We need to build that habit, kind of that muscle memory. Many of you know that uh, Brandy and I, we, we get up in the mornings, we try to at 5.30 to go do our old people walk, is what I call it, I'm old, she's not, four miles around the house and I go to work. 
I mean, we were diligent. It just, you just get up. You don't, need the, you don't even need the alarm clock. After three, four, five months, then it starts getting colder, and you set that alarm clock, and it goes off, and I roll over, and I say, that's a little cold this morning. No response, go to sleep, right? Next day, set the alarm clock. That's eh, raining a little bit. By the fourth day, you don't even set the alarm clock. You're not going. And so you can see we need, we need Sundays to help remind us. We need Sundays to, to help us get back to that muscle memory. We need one another. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded with the Lord's Supper to set us on a path to do good deeds, to meet pressing needs for Jesus, from our salvation, not for it. Well, if you've not ever read The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall, he's an old Puritan, I'd recommend it to you. This quote was sent to me this week by a dear sister, not even knowing I was preaching, but the Lord used the quote, and I think it sums up as we close out this portion of the sermon and this point. Thinking about learning to do good deeds, engaging in good deeds, God deserves the best service, he says, you can give him in your generation. So start letting his divine attributes manifest themselves in your life now. He does not give you a limited supply of his grace to be meted out a little at a time. Do not do like so many and tuck it away in a savings account, which you intend to use someday, but not now. Surely God is not so miserly with his spirit that you must budget your graces. Beloved, like them, we need to learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that we will not be unfruitful. Well, we've looked at Paul's plan, all the things he says he needs, and we're sending all the people. We've looked at Paul's instructions. He wants those people to be cared for. He wants the church mobilized to learn to engage in good deeds. Gave him a good concrete example. And now we look at Paul's greeting in verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Then our last point, we'll look at grace be with you all. Well, as I mentioned earlier, each verse is tethered to what Paul's been saying in a section about gospel believers and their behavior. I love that he tells us again that he's not by himself, and he tells us that Titus is, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Whoever is with him loves Titus and is praying for him in his ministry. Titus might not know who it is, and maybe Titus doesn't even know them. But in the family of God, siblings are for their siblings. It's both ways. Those are who with Titus love Paul and his companions in the faith. And this points to the love that we have in Christ for one another. This love fuels the one anothering and the good works that we're talking about. We want to learn to do good work, to engage, to be zealous. And if we do, it's because we love one another. Fervently loving one another from the heart, Peter says, love considers others as more important. And this is why Titus and the church will meet those pressing needs, because they love one another. Good works flow out of a love for God and for one another. Church center needs are gobbled up because of the love you have for one another. Adoptions are funded, food is provided, pastors are supported, missionaries are housed and sent, rides to church are given, movers are dispatched, and when someone moves across town, people go with them. House repairs are done in all of the myriads upon myriads of ways that you care for one another that no one will ever know about is done because you fervently love one another from the heart. Paul says, all who are with me greet you. 
He loves Titus. He loves those who are with Titus. And he says, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. We want to do good works and engage in good deeds because we love one another in the faith. Well, our final point, we've looked at Paul's plan, Paul's instruction, Paul's greeting. He says, greet those. And now finally, Paul's benediction. Grace be with you all. Now, I'll be honest, before First and Second Timothy, and now Titus, it was easy for me to just read through those final verses pretty quick, right? Like Paul says a lot of the same things, a lot of the guys show up, and he's always ending it with grace. But there's so much, so much here, as we're finding out. And in First and Second Timothy, if we go back, he closes with grace be with you, both times. But here he says, grace be with you all. Did he write it to Titus? Yes. It's not so much a personal letter like the others were, especially 2 Timothy. But he's writing this one to the church as well. To you all. And I love that he starts the book with grace and he ends the book with grace. Chapter 1, verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Where we're at now, grace be with you all. And all the way through, he points over and over to grace. He said a lot about it. It shows up. Chapter 2, verse 11, grace appeared in Christ. By grace we're redeemed. By grace we live godly lives. By grace we're empowered to be zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 4, it shows up again. Grace appears in the kindness of God saving us. By grace we're justified. By grace we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By grace we engage in good deeds. I loved an insight. I read a lot for the sermon, but I loved one insight from a commentator the most. It made me laugh. Paul and Titus had a long history, one commentator said. That is true. He did not need to school Titus here on the centrality and the magnificence of gospel grace. Still, he has mentioned in this epistle that grace appeared in Christ. He didn't have to, but he knew what Titus needed, so he gets the biggest gospel drum he can find, chapter 2, chapter 3, those passages, and he's just beating it over and over because he knows what Titus needs to hear. He knows what he needs to teach, and he knows that apart from the grace of Christ, Titus has nothing. And he knows that if we're going to be transformed into his image and be obedient and be ready for every good deed and to malign no one and to be gentle and to be hospitable and to be temperate, reverent, and to adorn the doctrine of God and add all the other good characteristics that come from the gospel that he notes in this epistle. He knows that it's only going to be by grace. It's only going to be by God's unmerited favor for them in Christ. That's it. And it's the same it's the same with us. Again, we need to be reminded of this grace. We, we sang about it. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, King who came with no crown or thorn. Helpless he lay, the invincible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son. Oh, what wisdom to save us all. Shepherds, sages, before him fall. Grace and majesty, what humility. Come on bended knee. Adore him. Grace is never separate from Christ. And as we think about his coming, his gospel work, it's not separated from that. It's tethered to that. The one who has come, Emmanuel, God with us, the one we sang about, the Matthew 1 Jesus, 
the one who's full of grace and truth, the John 1 Jesus gave himself for us. If we go back to Titus chapter 3 and that long list, those who were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, hating one another, he came to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, to make us zealous for good deeds. It is Christ who has saved us. It is not our works, and Paul makes that clear. It's the king who stepped out of heaven to give his life sacrificially. And if you think about giving and meeting needs, the incomparable generosity of Christ in taking our sin upon himself and giving us life in the resurrection, if you want to see the good soil where our works will flourish and bear fruit, it's in Christ who was infinitely, who is infinitely hospitable to sinners who are bankrupt and he meets our most pressing need and he takes people who are dead in their trespasses and he gives them life. He makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what the gospel does. And he purifies us and we'll sit at his table with him someday and sup with him. That's, that's generosity. That's the definition of generosity. I love that Titus was in Corinth for Paul, not to miss that detail. He sent him, I said earlier, to stir up the Christians there to give to that offering. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is going to be preached, I think, in a couple weeks here. But Titus would have known this passage. He would have known the reality of what it meant, and he would have saw it in actions. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. By definition, Jesus is the most generous person who ever lived. And by this grace, by this grace, we engage in good works to meet pressing needs. Well, I know I'm preaching to the choir. That's what Paul's doing here too in these final verses and his encouragements and his blessings. But I also know that there's people here like we once were who would say, I'm still in that passage. They may say, I see the good works thing and Man, I don't know so much about the Jesus alone, but like doing a lot of good things, got a lot of my own good works, and I think when I get there, he's just going to let me in. I'm working my way there. Well, God doesn't owe you anything. And for people like that, and we were once that way, it's nothing but wrath. But Titus 3 says that he redeems sinners from every lawless deed and purifies them for himself to be zealous for good deeds. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by trying to work to him. We're not saved by trying to stack our chips up to get some kind of favor. Blake prayed it earlier in our prayer meeting. It's only by his gospel work, his death and resurrection, sins forgiven, where we're forgiven and we have freedom. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. And he says things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary from trying to, to work your way to God? Jesus says there's no, that's, that's, that's not an option. There's not a way for that. He says, come to me and rest. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And when you do that through his poverty, through his coming, become rich. Not, not money. You get him. You get Christ. He's so merciful. So I would encourage you to turn to him today by faith.
and put your trust in him alone. Well, as we wrap up, just a few final practical thoughts. I have three, and then I'll pray and we'll be done. It's a very practical part of Scripture, very practical in Titus's letter here, but we might still be asking, what does it look like for us to engage in good deeds, to keep learning? Well, just three comments. One, consider Christ. You can say these better, you can think about them better, but consider Christ. Paul's constantly pointing Titus to Jesus. Titus 1, Titus 2, Titus 3. As the fountain of salvation, godly living, and the headwaters of good works. We're not saved by our deeds. That's the basis. That's not the basis of our salvation. It's Christ's mercy. And that will keep us from, we want to be true north as we think about engaging in good deeds. Considering Christ always, unashamedly, in everything. Especially here as we think about learning to do good deeds. So consider him too. Pray for God to show you how you can devote yourself to good works. Pray. Ask him for the grace of recognizing and listening and paying attention to needs. Around the lunch table today or the dinner table or with family or your disciple or with friends, ask them how you can be zealous for good deeds. Ask your kids. Last night I asked Ruthie how she's seen good works at Grace Church. How has she seen Grace Church meet needs for the gospel's sake? Now, I'm making much of God here, so I'm not trying to embarrass anybody or make much of anybody, but I'm, I'm making much of God's grace here. She said, Catherine brings Jasmine to church. Amen. I don't know if she does it every week, but I know she does it. I can imagine the conversations in the car. Praise God for that. That's a good work. And our kids see those things. We're in the middle of missions offering. You saw the video. That wasn't, I mean, it's been planned, but this sermon's been planned for a year. Pray about how God might use you to support Mark Morris and Jod Freiberg and Hunter Coy. And then finally, before I pray, learn by doing. This is the rah-rah speech, not for the sake of rah-rah, but to encourage you, to encourage me, to learn by doing. So consider Christ, pray, and learn by doing. Just get in there. Right? We read of good works throughout the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John. There's pressing needs. And then there's more normal needs. And we have a great example in our passage today. But we know that we engage in good works because of who we are. And whether it's one anothering or the public square or missions or church life, everything is tethered to spreading his eternal joy. So here's not an exhaustive list. This isn't meant to be you left one out. I'm just going to give you a few examples and then I'm going to pray. It's just my goal is to stir you up. Provide material and monetary support for missionaries. We saw it in our passage. Open your home in generous hospitality. That happens all the time here. I've heard of people taking suitcases full of stuff from a church to families on the mission field. Share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. You want to engage in good deeds? How about singing? Go read Colossians 3 and see what Paul says about congregational singing and about what it does this way. It's a good work. Bring a church member to church who can't get here. We've talked about that. Bring a meal to a family who had a baby or someone who's walking through hardship. Don't be argumentative at work. Titus 2.9, adorn the gospel. And the list goes on and on and on again. It's not exhaustive. It could never be exhaustive. Fill in the blank. Talk about these things. Pray about these things. And consider Christ. Well, I started the sermon by giving you two softball questions saying, what do these things have in common? Now, what if I said this? What do these people 
have in common. And I just took the Grace Church directory and I read, we don't have time, but I read every name, every name down to the end. Well, let's pray together and may God help us. Father, my prayer for us is that for the spreading of the eternal joy of Jesus, that we would be a people marked by learning to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that we would not be unfruitful, that we would be zealous for good deeds, that we would be careful to engage in good deeds for the good of others and for the sake of the gospel, and that as your people, together, we would look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.